Seekers, a very good Monday to you, a very good Monday indeed. Many of you have been asking me the question, what do you, Frank, believe about hyper grace? And this question was repeatedly asked in the survey that I had given at the end of 2013 to all of my blog readers. Let's talk about hyper grace. And this is a term that's being used by various different people to describe a teaching that overemphasizes grace to the point that it is misleading God's people. So critics will use the word hypergrace. Proponents and advocates of this teaching will call it radical grace. Well, let me say something about the history of this. Hypergrace, or as it sometimes has been called, cheap grace, we get this from Bonhoeffer from the early 20th century has been around a long, long time. I think we can historically root it in some of the teachings of Martin Luther that were taken to an extreme. I think we can root it in the teachings of John Nelson Darby, who is the father of this idea that there is a difference between a convert and a disciple, that converts are people who are saved, but disciples are people who really mean business and take up the cross and follow Jesus. Well, I agree with N.T. Wright on this, and I've written on it before. There is no difference in the New Testament between a convert, a saved person, a justified individual, a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and a disciple. They're all synonymous. And I have written a blog post called, What is the Gospel? And I intend to do a podcast on it, if in fact I continue to do podcasts, to highlight what the gospel is and isn't. Because, unfortunately, there's a lot of unclarity on this. I think probably the clearest person on this whole issue of what the gospel is, at least on the side of the neglected aspect of the gospel is N.T. Wright. He roots it into the first century world, the first century understanding, the way Paul of Tarsus used it, and the way that the Romans and Greeks and Jews would have understood that word against their background. His new mammoth titanic work, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, sketches this out pretty well, and I have reviewed it on my Patheos blog. But like everything else, this really does have historical roots 
in the New Testament itself, going beyond Luther, going beyond Darby. And there were two enemies of the gospel in the first century, and I've spoken about this before in some of my conferences. The one enemy is legalism. The other enemy is libertinism. And the people who use the term hyper-grace derogatorily are arguing that there is a teaching about grace that is so extreme that it leads to license to sin or libertinism. And again, you can find this in the first century. Just pick up the book of James. He is reacting to a strain of libertinism that was circulating in the Judean churches. Christians, like all others, tend to latch on to a truth and push the envelope to the extreme edge. And many of the errors that are circulating in the body of Christ today are not just pure false teachings. What they are is they are errors by emphasis. I'm going to repeat that phrase, errors by emphasis. You take a teaching that is rooted in scripture, you pile upon one another all of the pertinent verses in the New Testament that buttress that teaching, ignoring the text that contradict it. And now you have an error by emphasis. And many movements are built on an error by emphasis. I'm not going to mention them. Many teachers are guilty of this. We're all susceptible to it, including moi and you. All of us are susceptible to an error by emphasis. And I think that with the issue of grace and the issue of law, historically and contemporarily, there has been an error by emphasis. Now, let me tell you where I weigh in on this. And you can judge it by the scripture as well as your experience, as well as your spiritual instincts. I wrote a book a few years ago called Revise Us Again, and I think it's one of my best works. However, it has sold poorly. It's ironic to me because the people who read and reviewed it, and I'm including personal letters that have come to me, the responses have been overwhelmingly positive. Some people said it was a life changer. Some people said that certain chapters in there totally set them free. Some people said that certain chapters in that book broke strongholds that they had, both in their mind and in their life. And yet, that book moves so slowly. I don't know if it's the cover. I don't know if it's the title. I have no idea what it is. Someone once said, well, Frank, your book's on spiritual transformation and spiritual formation, and Christians aren't interested in either. I don't know if that's the answer or not, but I can tell you this. If you're listening to this podcast and what I have to say intrigues you at all, I would encourage you to get the book. And again, I'm not a salesman for books. I don't profit from my books personally. I've talked about this many times before. All proceeds from my books goes to help the poor and the ministry expenses. But I write books to help God's people. I write books to share what's helped me, hoping that it will help others. Anyway, when I put that book out, there's a chapter at the end called The Three Gospels. And the editor said, look, this chapter is so powerful. I think you should write an entire book on it. Well, I haven't done that yet because, gosh, this book isn't even selling very well. No, if that somehow changes, then maybe I'll consider writing a book on the three Gospels. But until that happens, my thinking is people aren't interested in it. History, Martin Luther said, is like a drunk man on a horse. No sooner does he fall off on the left side, does he mount again and fall off on the right. And I think with most issues of controversy, we have a subject wherein Christians are falling off one side of the horse or the other on it. And the trick is to land in the saddle. And I hope by my talk on this subject that that will in fact be the result. 
But in that chapter of the three Gospels, I talk about three distinctive messages that many contemporary Christians have accepted today. Some have accepted the gospel of legalism. And Reformed people tend to restrict legalism to be the attempt to earn salvation by human works. But legalism goes way beyond that. It's much deeper than that, especially for the Christian. Legalists are people who believe that salvation is by grace alone, but sanctification comes by your own effort of trying hard to be a, quote, good Christian, end of quote. Legalists tend to push their own personal standards on everyone else. They're quick to judge other people's motives. They think the worst of them and their intentions. They confuse obedience with trying to serve God in their own power and resource. They demand other people to do things that they themselves would never carry out. They regard the sins of others as more severe and grievous than their own. And on that point, Philip Yancey brilliantly, brilliantly said, Christians get very angry toward other Christians who sin differently than they do. Legalists also feel that it's their right to become intrusive meddlers, or as Paul put it, condemningly busybodies in other men's affairs. They're blind to their own self-righteousness. They pride themselves on being clean on the outside without realizing they are defiled on the inside. For all of these reasons, the legalist unwillingly brings an enormous amount of pain and heartache into the lives of other people. Yet sadly, they are totally, completely out of touch with this. Or they'll write it up under the banner of, God told me to do this. Or I'm being a good Christian by doing this. Now, forgive the personal reference. When I was in my teens, I came to the Lord through a legalistic denomination. I was fed a steady diet of the gospel of legalism. I was surrounded by legalists. And to my shame, and it is my responsibility, and I am embarrassed by it, but I used to be a legalist without even realizing it. But God was merciful. Now let's shift over to the other side of the coin, the libertines. In reaction to legalism and the devastation that it brings to other people, as well as a bad testimony to the world, you know, survey after survey given to people who are not Christians, who are asked, what do you think about Christians? And the response has been overwhelmingly, they're judgmental, they're self-righteous, they're religious, they don't care about people, they're critical, and they're selfish. And those are their good points. <clears throat> they're narrow-minded, they're out of touch with reality, etc., etc. Well, sadly, some of that is true for many believers. I did a podcast called I Don't Like Christians, and I was quoting a friend of mine who is one of the godliest people I've ever met. There is a blog post that I have written called Warning. The world is watching how we Christians treat one another. And if you haven't read it, you would do well to do that. But in reaction to the devastation that legalism brings, some have accepted the gospel of libertinism. What's a libertine? A libertine is a person who lives the way they want and have skirted the lordship of Christ and all that it means. They're apt to justifying carnality and fleshliness by pulling the grace card or the I'm free in Christ card or the don't judge me card. For the libertine, grace becomes licensed to live in the flesh and silence their conscience. Some libertines have rationalized to themselves that they can continue to practice a particular transgression and God is cool with it regardless of the carnage it brings. Some libertines have gone so far into deception that they have reinvented Jesus in their own image to justify their rebellion against the Lord and clothe it with spiritual talk. Others have gone further off the beam and have become practical atheists. Note that there are degrees of legalism and there are degrees of libertinism. I'm just sketching out the raw definitions. And these definitions 
will give you the flavor of each. And if I can put it in a sentence, the libertine lives as if there is no God. The legalist lives as though she or he is God to everyone else. And brothers and sisters, we have not so learned Jesus Christ, to quote Paul. And let me tell you what complicates this even more. The legalist doesn't know that he or she is a legalist and tends to view all non-legalists as libertines. And the libertine doesn't know that she or he is a libertine and tends to view all non-libertines as legalists. And without the Holy Spirit's illumination, this deception is difficult, if not impossible, to break. The truth is, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need Jesus Christ to forgive, deliver, and keep us each day from both the defiling acts of the flesh and the self-righteousness of the flesh. And there are two sides to the tree that God forbid us to eat from. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so there is a side of the flesh that is the self-righteousness aspect of it. And there is a side of the flesh that is the defiling, corrupting acts that spring from it. But it's the same tree, saints, and it's the same flesh. Now, in the article, The Three Gospels, from Revises Again, the book that no one reads, <clears throat> I discuss both the gospel of legalism and the gospel of libertinism in great detail, and I compare and contrast and give examples of each one, and how each one talks and what each one would say. I give a whole summary of that. I then contrast the two gospels with the gospel of Jesus and Paul, which I call the gospel of lordship in the Gospel of Liberty, because in the New Testament it's referred to as both. And I explain how those two words are not contradictory, but they go hand in hand. Lordship and Liberty. Lordship and Liberty. The Gospel of Lordship, the Gospel of Liberty. They are not contrary to one another. They are complementary. They're two sides to the same glorious Gospel. The Gospel in the New Testament is rooted in reality. It's rooted in the real Jesus, and it sets us free from the defilement of the flesh on the one hand and the self-righteousness of the flesh on the other. Both bring bondage in different ways, because both violate love, which is the nature of God's own life. One of the things that I have learned in my spiritual journey is that the closer that someone gets to Jesus Christ, the less judgmental, the less self-righteous, the less harsh toward other people and the less selfish he or she will be. Now, I'm not going to talk to you about the gospel of liberty or the gospel of lordship in this episode. If you're interested in my take on that, then get Revise Us Again, or if you have it, read the last chapter of the three gospels, and I trust you'll be very clear on it. And I do, God willing, I'm repeating what I said at the front, plan on putting out another podcast episode in the future on what is the gospel, and I will touch that particular aspect in that presentation. But again, the verdict's out for me if I'm going to even continue this podcast. It all depends on your responses. Now, we're going to break for a commercial, and then I'm going to switch gears and read to you a personal letter that I wrote to a quote-unquote grace teacher about some of the issues I had with what he was teaching. Okay, kids, let's go. There's just one place to go for all your spatula needs. Spatula City! Spatula City! A giant warehouse of spatulas for every occasion. Thousands to choose from in every shape, size, and color. 
And because we eliminate the middleman, we can sell all our spatulas factory direct to you. Where do you go when you want to buy name brand spatulas at a fraction of retail cost? Spatula City! Spatula City! And this weekend only, take advantage of our special liquidation sale. Buy nine spatulas, get the tenth one for just one penny. Don't forget, they make great Christmas presents. And what better way to say I love you than with the gift of a spatula? Spatula City! Spatula City! Hello, this is Cy Greenbloom, president of Spatula City. I like their spatulas so much, I bought the company. Spatula City, seven locations. We're in the yellow pages under spatulas. My, where did you get that lovely spatula? Oh! Welcome back. As promised, I'm going to read to you a letter that I wrote to a grace teacher, someone who has been accused of embracing and teaching the hyper-grace message. And what I presented to you in the first segment of this episode gives you, whether you realize it or not, my thoughts on the issue of grace. Instead of responding specifically to this teacher or that teacher or this teaching or that teaching, I blew it up really big so you can see both edges of it. And I talked about some of the unspoken problems for both the legalistic message and attitude and the libertine message and attitude. I don't think that every person who is preaching grace can be thrown into the same basket. And the individual that I'm going to be referring to, I'm not going to mention his name, he's a friend of mine, but he is very strong on the grace of God, and he asked me to endorse his book. And in reading it, I had a, a few problems with it. Most of it was fine, and most of it was good, but I had a few problems with it. And I wrote him a letter about the issues where I had problems and he responded very well to what I had to say, but he was under such a quick deadline that he did not have time to make the changes I was asking for. And so I haven't looked at the final version, but I didn't end up endorsing it because I don't know if those changes were made. But here goes. Uh, I removed his name and I removed the page numbers because it's not necessary that you know who I'm talking about. Dear blank, to my mind, if the following qualifications aren't made, Readers will misunderstand some things, and detractors will have strong fodder for legitimate criticisms in your book. This comes at an interesting time, and I went on to talk to him about the fact that another friend of mine was writing a book critiquing some of those who teach grace, and this gentleman who I'm writing to, who is another friend of mine, was in this other person's crosshairs. And so I managed to get them two together to talk because I wanted to make sure that my friend who was writing this critique was not misrepresenting at all my other friend who is being mentioned in the book. So the first half of that goes into that discussion and then I launch into the exact issues I have with his book or concerns. Here's a quote from a prominent grace teacher. Quote, for example, some things that Jesus said in the four Gospels were spoken before the cross, before he had died for our sins, and some were said after the cross, when he had already won our complete forgiveness and rightfully given us his righteousness. It is the latter that applies to us, believers under the new covenant today, end of quote. Now, this is a quote from a prominent grace teacher, and I'm using it as a launching board in this letter to my friend. But in effect, this grace teacher is saying that whatever Jesus said before the cross does not apply to Christians. And sisters and brothers, that 
is completely false. That is snake oil. And quite frankly, from a biblical perspective, it's ludicrous. Oh! Certainly, there are a few things that Jesus said to the apostles. Some of you will be on my right hand and some of you will be on my left. And, you know, that doesn't apply to us today. But the bulk of what he taught was a revelation of himself, a revelation of his father, a revelation of the kingdom of God, and a revelation of life, whom Jesus Christ himself is. Matthew 7:12. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. Upon this hangs the law and the prophets. That summarized everything he taught. It is how love, which is the DNA of God's life, visibly expresses itself. And to toss that out as one example, because it was before the cross, is something that every first century Christian, including Paul of Tarsus, would have rejected out of hand. So I quote this grace teacher, and I say to my friend, you don't believe like this person does, that all of Jesus' teaching before the cross have no application to us today, do you? If so, that teaching is royally false. Just pick up a book by N.T. Wright which excoriates this sort of thinking. And thankfully, he wrote me back and said he did not believe that. Thank God. Okay, now on to your book. It's a good book and you make some great points, but these qualifiers will make it stronger and less problematic, I feel. I'm not sure if you're aware of the hyper-grace movement of the 1970s that blew through Campus Crusade and spread to many quarters of the Christian world. Pete Gilquist, John Braun, Jack Sparks, etc. are some of the champions of it. It destroyed many people as it led them into libertinism, license to sin. I'm an advocate of learning from history, else it will be repeated, as it usually is. So my comments are toward that end. If you agree with me on these points, you can urge your publisher to make these additions. I've done this with some publishers at the midnight hour, and they can't help but do it if the author feels strongly about it. Especially if you say that leaving them out will hurt the book. This one is big. It concerns what you say in a particular section. Let me explain first. Saying that Christians don't have to feel guilty and that we are not condemned is wonderful. However, if a Christian sins against another person or the Lord, their conscience will register that through the Holy Spirit. That's not the accusation of the enemy. It's the illumination of the Spirit. Paul points to it when he said, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Unrepentant sin, which is sin that a person doesn't deal with or stop, will give a believer turbulence in their spirit and for good reason. They shouldn't ignore their conscience just because Jesus shed his blood for their sins. They shouldn't say, that's guilt, so I'm going to ignore it. Jesus forgives all sin. That feeling of turbulence will remain until they deal with their sin, which means stopping it, a la repenting, and then making restitution if applicable. For example, if they stole something, they will return it. If they lied, they will make it right. They will give an apology, etc. This is how the Spirit of God will lead them. The discussion in that section leaves the impression that it doesn't matter what a Christian does, that there are no spiritual consequences because all is forgiven. And to feel bad about sin is always wrong. This is not true biblically. The Spirit is a person, a real person, and he can be grieved by us, as Paul said in Ephesians. Paul also says, do not quench the spirit in Thessalonians. This isn't guilt, and it's not condemnation, but it's the sense of grief and sorrow and lack of peace because of sin, sin that we have allowed ourselves to engage in. 
Again, what I'm talking about is the illumination of the Spirit. Some call it conviction, but some Christians don't like that term since it's used in reference to the world in John. So throw out the word conviction. It is the illumination of the Spirit, and illumination is a perfectly fine way to describe it as the Spirit gives us light on both things positive and negative. If believers resist, ignore, or push down the Spirit's illumination when it comes to their sin, they can sear their conscience. Paul talks about godly sorrow leading to repentance. Again, he was writing to believers. So sorrowing over sin is good, and the Spirit will work that in our hearts if we let him. James addresses this too in his letter. In addition, the Lord disciplines and chastens his own children. And the Spirit will also lead us to make restitution when we have wronged someone, as I've said earlier. Without these additional thoughts added to the book, the message is incomplete and can lead toward libertinism, which I know you don't want. If I can use a metaphor that I think will help, your daughter will always be your daughter. It doesn't matter what she does, she is already forgiven. Your forgiveness for her, your love for her, your mercy for her covers every infraction, past, present, and future. Recall the time that she did something wrong and apologized to you. You may have said something to her, thank you for apologizing, this is good, but I forgave you long before you ever did anything wrong. However, you discipline your daughter for her own good when she does something wrong, because you're training her. You chastise her for her own good. This is training. Sometimes it's painful. It's not punitive. It's not a reflection of hate. It's a reflection of love. The point is, there are consequences to your daughter's actions. When she does wrong to others, you expect her to make restitution. And you have no problem with her apologizing because this clears the air with her. It lightens her conscience, even though forgiveness, your forgiveness, was always there and has always been granted. I think the idea that forgiveness means no consequences is clearly an error from the New Testament. I also think that the idea that says if something goes wrong in your life, it's always the devil doesn't fit the full teaching of Scripture. I'm not saying that you believe this, but readers can infer it the way the book is written in its present form. So here is a suggested solution. I think you should add a few short paragraphs to the advice section and say something like this. Quote, now someone reading this may conclude, wow, so I'm totally forgiven, therefore I can now do whatever I want. There are no consequences and I shouldn't even feel bad about it. No, it doesn't work that way. God's forgiveness doesn't mean there are no consequences for sinning against the Lord and hurting others. Paul exhorted Christians to grieve not the Spirit. When we grieve Him, it registers in our conscience. This is the illumination work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. It happens when we are walking out of step with our new nature. It's automatic. The remedy for this is repentance, to turn away from the sin, and grounding yourself in the blood of Jesus by faith once again, which has been shed for your sins already. As John says, I write these things that you sin not, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Furthermore, it may also mean making restitution with those we've injured. It may be returning something we've taken or apologizing for an offense we've committed. We often will not have peace in our spirits until we do so. Again, this is not tied to the forgiveness of the Lord. It has to do with relationship, relationship, relationship and clearing the air in our own conscience. As for consequences, if we are truly in Christ, we are always his child. But because we are his children, he disciplines and chastises us when we stray from his will. 
Now, this is repeated throughout the New Testament. And I'm not talking about the Gospels. Jesus says it in Revelation, for example. So sin doesn't remove us from God's love or acceptance, but it does have consequences. Thankfully, because of the Spirit, we can remedy those consequences. On another page, I don't believe it's accurate to say that if something bad happens to a Christian, that it's either the flesh or the devil or the world. The Manichaeans taught that if something is good, it's God, and if it's bad, it's Satan. Some charismatics have picked this up, especially the word faith camp. Not all in the word faith camp, but many. Two thoughts here. One, God does chasten his children according to the New Testament. That's not punishment, it's correction. Two, there's also the subjective work of the cross to break us. A person doesn't have to be sinning to require brokenness. This is the discipline of the Spirit. Think of it as training for transformation. You allude to brokenness later, but I think this point should be added here. The Lord will use the world, circumstances, etc. to do this as his tool. But it's not punishment for sin. It's the discipline or training of the Spirit. So I'd rework that section on that page and add these thoughts there. Of course, I'm assuming that you agree with what I'm saying here. If you add the above points, then on another page, after, quote, yes, there is a healthy regret of sin, end of quote, I'd add something like this. As we saw in a previous chapter, the spirit can be grieved and this will register in our conscience. But that's not condemnation or the accusation of the enemy. It's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Its purpose is to lead us to repentance and to make restitution with others, if necessary. Condemnation has no redeeming value. The illumination of the Spirit does. I wrote a blog post called The Finger or the Hand, and you can find it on my blog. Just do a search on it. But it talks about the difference between the enemy when it comes to sin and condemnation and guilt and the Spirit when it comes to illumination with respect to sin. So I would add that to this episode to round it out. I hope this has been helpful to you. If you enjoy my podcasts, that doesn't mean you love every one of them, but as a whole, if you like the podcasts, please go to iTunes. You can find my iTunes link at frankviola.org forward slash podcast, and you'll see the iTunes link. Click on that and give it a rating. Five stars would be appreciated and would really help other people find it. Go to frankviola.org forward slash feedback. That's frankviola.org forward slash feedback and tell me if this podcast has benefited you at all. I will say something else to you. If you have trouble listening to podcasts with respect to time, I'll tell you what I do. I listen to podcasts when I'm at the gym. I bring my iPhone, earbuds, pop it in, and if I'm on the treadmill... I listen to it. I also listen to podcasts in my car as I'm driving around, and I also listen to podcasts while I'm walking. For when the weather is nice, I like to walk. So those are three ways that work for me, and if you haven't considered any of those three ways, I would pass it on to you. Until next time, the Lord bless you and keep you. Later. I'm sick.